If you were to Google the top buzzwords of 2015, here's a few that you would find. Viewability. Viewability is how much a paid-for advertisement was actually seen by real people. Newsjacking. This is the art or science of injecting your brand's ideas into a breaking news story and generating media coverage and social media engagement as a result. Smarketing. Smarketing is the process of integrating sales and marketing process of a business to unify the company goals and provide consistent messaging for your brand. Here's one. The it factor. In a business, this essentially means the one special factor that makes any company new, different, interesting. In the past, this term has been known as the secret ingredient, the special sauce, or the X factor. Native advertising. And no, this has nothing to do with Native Americans. Growth hacking, dashboard, in the cloud. These are all terms that were in the top buzzwords for 2015. But what if we were to formulate a short list of not top buzzwords? I have a feeling that some of them would be as follows. Obedience, repentance, master, slave, submission. These would undoubtedly make the top not buzzwords of 2015. Our culture is so much about independence and self-autonomy and my rights, my will, my freedom, that nobody wants to talk about submission. Not even just out there, but even in the church. There's a hesitancy to speak of submission or obedience to Christ even within the people of God. And actually, this problem even trickles down into their soteriology, their doctrine of salvation, how they view salvation, how they are viewing and understanding the person and work of Christ. This evening, however, I want to take a stance on this. If you're not aware, this is a hotly debated topic, and it's called Lordship Salvation. And what it's going to deal with is, how is one saved? And tonight, we're going to take a stance, not just on the basis of opinion or conjecture, but on the basis of Scripture itself. I believe that the influence of culture has shifted people's minds toward error in this matter. And so here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to define the issue. Then we're going to look at the case for non-lordship salvation. Then we're going to look at what the Bible has to say on the issue. And then we're going to look at, briefly, the implications of lordship salvation. And I'm going to note before starting that there were two books that were super helpful in this. The Gospel According to Jesus and The Gospel According to the Apostles, written by the same author. They both hit on this exact issue. They were written to address this issue, so they were helpful for me in preparing for this. And so let's begin by defining the issue. And essentially, here's the question that we are going to try to answer tonight. Must Jesus be both Lord and Savior of an individual in order for genuine salvation to occur? Must Jesus be both Lord and Savior of an individual in order for salvation to occur? As Christians, we are so accustomed to this phrase, Lord and Savior, right? We hear professional athletes after a game, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior. Without him, none of this would be possible, right? You hear that? Uh, If you go to church on Sunday, you have undoubtedly heard this phrase countless times. Have you received Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior? Right? A good thing to say, but you've, we've heard this over and over and over again. And partly, the reason we've heard this is because it's a biblical phrase. Lord and Savior appears in Scripture all the time. Peter said it several times, the most well-known being in 2 Peter 3.18, when he said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Paul used that phrase. Luke used it. The Old Testament even used it. Psalm 38 verse 22 says, Come quickly to help me, my Lord and my Savior. And so we see this expression used both in Christianity and in the Bible. And I think for the most part, we understand what it means to be Savior, right? We understand that term. He saved us from the penalty of sin. He saved us from the power of sin. He will ultimately save us from the presence of sin, hell, wrath, punishment, separation from God. Jesus is the Savior of all of these things to the one who places faith in him. However, I am fairly certain that we do not fully grasp what it means for Jesus to be Lord. He is Lord over all, which means that he is master. Jesus has dominion over and right over everything that exists. And in fact, listen to Philippians 2.9. It says that God has bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God has given Jesus the lordship over all things. From elsewhere in Scripture, we know that Jesus is creator, he is sustainer, he's the heir of the universe, he's the judge in the end times, he's the alpha, he's the omega. Therefore, it only follows that everything belongs to him. He has dominion, he has right to everything. This is what it means for Jesus to be Lord. And at an individual level, what it means is that he has become the, you have made him the Lord of your life. He is now in charge. He is the one that is commanding the direction of your life. He says, jump, you say, how high? Do you get the picture? This is what it means for Jesus to be Lord of your life. So then, here enters the issue. When coming to Jesus for salvation, does one need to recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, or do they simply need to turn to him as Savior? And the issue is further amplified when we ask the question, how are we to present the gospel to people with regards to salvation? Do we just present that he can be one Savior and not their Lord? Or do we present that he must be Lord and Savior? And so to attempt to tackle this, let's begin by looking at the case for non-Lordship salvation. And this is the view which says that the Lordship of Christ does not need to be included in the gospel presentation in order for someone to be saved. And their first and foremost argument is going to come from the centrality of belief in the Gospels or in the Gospel presentation. They say that by demanding a person to recognize Jesus as Lord and therefore striving to live in obedience to him, it is confusing the issue of salvation by grace alone. They state that one is saved simply by believing and that no action is required whatsoever. In order to do this, they define repentance as simply a change of mind about Christ with no turning in sin to follow. In turn, there's no need to see any fruit after conversion. There's no need to see a desire to be dedicated to Christ. And they will say that some Christians very, mel- very well may live an entire life of carnality and sinfulness, never turning from sin. So long as they say they believe, they must be a believer. Now, there are several things to work through here, and we will approach them hopefully one by one. But with regards to the gospel being centered around the word believe, I agree. The gospel is around the word believe. And in fact, turn to John chapter 1. 
Just to look at a few examples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're going to be in the right half of your Bible in the New Testament tonight. And I just want to survey, just so you can see this, that they're not making this up. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus speaking, he says, starting in 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Next verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Flip over to chapter 5. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Flip over to chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Chapter 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living waters. Chapter 8, verse 34, or verse 24, as one last example. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And we could go on and look at 9, chapter 9, verse 38, 11, 25, and 45, 14, chapter 20. It's all throughout the Gospel of John. It's unavoidable. Without a doubt, belief is the central focus of John's Gospel. And really, it's the simplified version of the Gospel. If you have one phrase to present to someone... It may very well be, believe on Jesus Christ. But let me ask this question. How are we defining belief? And this is where the argument hinges. Is genuine belief simply a verbal confession or statement, or is it something more? What is the relationship between genuine belief and works? What is the relationship between genuine belief and obedience? What is the genuine the relationship between genuine belief and repentance? How do they relate? These are the questions that must be sorted through. And friends, let me tell you, the implications of where you land on these are huge. Think about this for a moment. This affects how we deal with someone who says they're a believer, but they live a lifestyle of wanton pleasure and sin. This affects how we view the efficacy of the cross. In other words, does the gospel really change anything, or is Jesus just an add-on to a normal lifestyle of sin and pleasure? This affects how we share the gospel, does it not? If you're okay with just getting a verbal confession from someone, then your whole motive is to get them to see that they, want, that they need to add Jesus on and that they simply need to make a verbal confession or repeat after you and say this prayer, and therefore you've cheapened the gospel and potentially given them false assurance. And so it is imperative that we get this right. So again, here's the question. Must Jesus be both Lord and Savior for genuine salvation to occur? Now, the second half of the argument for the non-lordship side, which is closely related to the first, is that to demand obedience as part of salvation is to revert to a works-based salvation. 
It's to revert to works righteousness. In other words, to expect obedience or repentance or fruit to occur in a person's life is to <clears throat> confuse con- conversion and works. And we know that we're not saved by works, right? I mean, I agree with this. Romans 3.10 says there's no, none good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 2.8.9, you're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Isaiah 64, 6, there are none, or your most righteous deeds are filthy rags, right? I mean, that verse is perhaps the strongest of them all. Your most righteous deeds are filthy rags. There is nothing good that you can do. So I agree. We're not saved by works. But at this point, they will argue that by requiring obedience in conjunction with conversion, that the issue of salvation is confused. And in other words, they would say that sanctification does not have to occur or Christian growth, in other words, does not need to occur after conversion in order for that conversion to be deemed legitimate. Are you tracking with that? In other words, a person can say they believe and really have no true life change as a result. And so my question is going to be this. What do we do about James when he says faith without works is dead? What do we do when Scripture calls men and women to repent in order to be saved? How are we to understand Jesus calling people to follow him in submissive obedience in order to obtain eternal life? And so now I want to look at what does the Bible say in response to these questions? How are we to think through biblically? And and really, we're going to see the case for, for lordship salvation. Throughout this semester, we've seen who Jesus is. We've seen that he is God. He's man. He's our advocate. He's the, our atonement. He's preeminent or first place in everything. He will ultimately be our judge. Therefore, knowing who he is, what is our response to be? We often use this phrase, put your faith in Christ. But what does that mean? What is the nature of true faith? What does this kind of faith look like and where does it come from? And so first, if you're following on the outline, I want to look at the nature of genuine faith. And this is really key, so tune in if you've zoned out for a moment. The nature of genuine faith. And the passage I want to go to is James chapter 2. So head toward the back of your Bible, five or six books from the end. And we're going to look at James chapter 2. And in this, James is going to set up this dichotomy of two kinds of faith, real faith and fake faith or phony faith. And we're not going to look at the whole passage, but just look at verse 14 of James chapter 2. He says, What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? James is asking the question, can that faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? And what is the implied answer here? No. That kind of faith cannot save a person if they say they have faith and there are no works to follow. He explains it in the next verse. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. James's entire point here is not the relationship of works to salvation, but he's looking at the nature of true saving faith. He's distinguishing between true faith and false faith or fake faith. The issue here is the quality of one's faith. And if it is true, it will show itself in how one acts. 
And in fact, he goes on to explain a wonderful example. And in Genesis 15, it says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And yet later in Genesis 22, what did, what did Abraham do? He sacrificed his son Isaac, therefore validating his claim to have faith in God. He showed his faith because God said, sacrifice your son. Well, I guess he didn't quite sacrifice his son, but he just about sacrificed his son Isaac. He placed his faith in God by his works. And it's important the order there, and that's what James goes on to say. The point is, is that there's two types of faith. There's two, there's two different kinds of belief, true and false. And maybe just as an analogy to help us uh, think about this, some of you have heard this, so bear with me, but imagine you're up at Niagara Falls, and if you fall from the top, you plummet to your death. And there's a man that comes, and he strings a rope across uh, the banks beyond the falls, and he says, do you guys believe, do you have faith in me that I can walk across this tightrope and not fall and make it to the other side. And the crowd gathers around. People are, oh, this guy's crazy. Yeah, we believe. Okay, great. He walks. He makes it. Okay, that's up the ante. He gets a wheelbarrow. And he says, do you guys believe I could take this wheelbarrow and tiptoe across this tightrope with this wheelbarrow and make it to the other side? Yeah, we believe. They start chanting, we believe, we believe. Okay? He makes it across the other side. Okay, let's up it one more time. Do you guys believe I could put a person in the wheelbarrow and then take the wheelbarrow and myself and walk across the tightrope to the other side? And there's still people there crazy enough to say, yeah, we believe. And then he says, okay, who's going to get in? I need a person. Do you see the difference between saying, yeah, I believe that you can do that and actually putting your life in the wheelbarrow? Right there demonstrates there are different types of belief. True and genuine faith in Christ results in true and genuine conformity of one's life to Christ's will. Well, a young man came to Jesus with uh, a spiritual interest. And I think this example is going to help us understand this further. Go back to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, chapter 19. Look at Matthew 19, verse 16. I'm going to read this whole passage, then we'll work back through it. It says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's consider a few observations here. And the first is that this man had a good question. He was seeking eternal life, and you know what? He was seeking it from the right person. 
He ended up asking Jesus about eternal life. That's a good question. However, right away, Jesus calls him on the carpet and points out his pride. He says, look at verse 17. Jesus says, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. He's already trying to show this man there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation because there's only one who is truly good, and that's God. Jesus knew this man's heart right away was not in a place to submit to God and to trust in his righteousness. And so Jesus throws a test at the young man. He's just told him there's only one who is good, implying there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, and yet he's going to be more direct. Look at the second part of 17. He says, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And as you're reading this story, at least as I'm reading this story, I'm just like hoping that this guy will recognize his need for a Savior, that he'll see, oh, well, I can't keep the commandments perfectly. I need a Savior. And that Jesus would right then and there say, well, I'm the Savior. But that's not what he does. That's not what the young man does, is it? He continues in his own self-righteousness, and he asks, which ones, in verse 18? Now, Jesus' response after that is interesting because he presumably gives him (laughs) the six most easy to obey. He gives them the commands that are man-related rather than God-related, right? He says, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't murder. Now, granted, I don't believe anyone can keep these perfectly, but almost to protect this guy's pride, he gives them the easier ones to keep. And yet, what does the man say in verse 20? The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? And it's at this point that our discussion becomes relevant. This man was not getting it. He wasn't seeing what it takes to obtain eternal life. So Jesus pushes further. In verse 21, he says, Okay, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But the young man, when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. This man thought he was good enough to be saved, so Jesus showed him what he really takes. And what it really takes is this. Jesus is looking for wholesale devotion. He is looking for wholesale devotion. He's looking for genuine faith and a genuine trust. He wants all of oneself and not just part. And it's not, he's not really interested in half-hearted seekers. He's looking for not just a half-hearted faith, but a, a full, genuine faith and trust I mean, think about it for a moment. Guys, what kind of a church growth strategy is this? This guy comes to Jesus asking him about eternal life, and Jesus eventually turns him away. He's looking for genuine faith, wholehearted trust. And now, here's the question. Well, how can this kind of faith come about? How can I, I can't muster up this kind of faith. How do I produce this? That's what the disciples said. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved, Jesus? And what does he say? Look at 26. Looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. This kind of faith that Jesus is looking for, this kind of genuine faith must come from God. It must be the Spirit causing a man or a woman to be born again. It's a God-given faith. Therefore, here's the sweet part about it. Number one, it's real and it's genuine, and you know that by the Holy Spirit's seal. And number two, it will endure. It will never go away. It will never fade. It will never falter. If it's from God, you better believe it's going to remain. 
And so that's what Jesus is saying in terms of the kind of faith that he's looking for for the kingdom of heaven. Now flip back to Matthew 13. I want to demonstrate this again from a parable. These two parables are (laughs) excellent demonstrations of the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about. Look at Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the kind of faith that saves, guys and gals. This is the quality of faith that leads to eternal life. These parables both emphasize the same point, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is worth sacrificing for. It's worth going all in for. And it's interesting that whether, he uses two examples, whether you're in a rural setting or a more populated setting in the city, both of these guys gave up all they had in order to get into the kingdom. This is true faith. This is the kind of true faith of putting one's full trust in God. And these men were overjoyed with the gift of salvation. It didn't matter what the Lord asked of them. They were going to do anything in order to receive this gift. This kind of life is only found in Jesus. And they were willing to give up everything they had to get it. Now, the second consideration, that was the first consideration under lordship, salvation, or what does the Bible say? The second is this. Genuine faith must be accompanied by repentance. And in order, in order to understand this, we need to define what repentance is biblically. Simply put, repentance is a change of heart that results in a change of life. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines repentance as affecting the whole man, first and basically the center of personal life, then logically his conduct at all times in all situations, his thoughts, words, and acts. Repentance is a spiritual turning. It is not just merely a rethinking of our state before God. It is not just merely something intellectual. It is not just a resolve to do better. And it's not penance. In other words, it's not trying to atone for our sin. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7 distinguishes between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, or really worldly repentance and godly repentance. There are different types of repentance. But true biblical repentance is a recognition of our sinful state and then a turning from and a hatred for that sinful state. One systematic theology was helpful in breaking it into three categories, intellectual, emotional, and volitional. The intellectual element of repentance involves a recognition of our sin, our defilement, and our helplessness. But the emotional side of it is then having a sorrow over that sin, having a godly sorrow over our offense to God because of our sin. And then thirdly, there must be a volitional And the volitional is the change of purpose or change of inward state of being, an inward turning from that sin. All three of these must be present in genuine repentance. And so at this point, you may ask, well, why does repentance even matter? I thought all that that mattered for salvation was belief, according to John. (laughs) But friend, we're forgetting something. Repentance and belief 
are two sides of the same coin. Repentance and belief go hand in hand in the Bible. They're both a work of God. They're both a work of the Spirit, and they occur simultaneously. And if you don't believe me, let's just look at what the Scriptures say. Turn to the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And we'll start in chapter 2. And I just want to show you the demand for repentance for salvation. Peter has just preached a wonderful sermon. And Jesus at this point is already dead, risen, and then ascended into heaven. And Peter preaches this sermon. Lights out. Verse 36, he closes it and he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Christ is another word for Messiah, which is another word for Savior. So even right there we see God has made Jesus Lord and Savior, right? But look at 37. Now when they heard this, who's they? Well, it's the thousands of people gathered around at this point. When all these people heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And it's implied, what shall we do to be saved? In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter said to repent in order to be saved. Look again, though, at chapter 3, verse 11. Same guy preaching, Peter. This time, actually, he's just healed a lame man. And it says in in chapter 3, verse 11, while he, the lame man, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, and it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return. Repent and return. So that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Two quick observations here. Number one, in verse 17, where, did, where does the faith come from? It says, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. But number two, and the point I want to highlight is that Jesus says, even the, or Peter says about Jesus, even these people who, does, who wanted to let go the criminal who was a murderer so that instead they would kill Jesus, even these people could be saved if they would repent. They weren't too far gone. They weren't too far from being saved. They just needed to repent. Well, now turn to Acts 17. Not just Peter talks about repentance, but Paul does as well. And this time Paul is ministering. He's he's preaching in the Areopagus in Athens. 
And he doesn't know these people, but he walks in and he sees these false, uh, well, they're engaged in false worship. They're worshiping false gods in a false religion. And in verse 30, just to summarize, Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul says, turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Well, lest we, lest we be deceived that only the apostles talked about this, Jesus said in Mark 1.15, repent and believe, right? Both sides of the coin, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. In fact, flip back to Matthew 11. Back to Matthew again. Chapter 11 Verse 20. <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking again, Matthew eleven twenty. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. So Jesus had done many miracles in these cities and they had not repented. Verse 21. Woe to you, Cherazim. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred entire and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus' strict warning and coming judgment on these cities is because of what? Because they wouldn't repent. Flip two Gospels to your right, Matthew, Mark, to Luke. Luke chapter 15. Here Jesus is uh, speaking in parable form again, an earthly story to convey a heavenly truth. Luke chapter 15, verse 3, it says, So he told them a parable, saying, Jesus speaking, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Now key in here at verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus says that when a person repents and turns to Christ as their Savior, it causes God joy. There's joy in heaven. God is joyful. Why? Because there's a, now a child of God. There's now a new brother or sister coming into the kingdom of heaven. That causes God joy. That's a neat thing. You guys know the Great Commission, right? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. But look at Luke's version of this. Go back to Luke toward the end, toward Luke chapter 24. Luke adds an interesting comment. He doesn't say the same thing word for word. But he's going to define what they were to speak about. And look at Luke chapter 24, verse 44. Sorry, verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead, the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. 
but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. What's the point? In other words, the message of the Great Commission was what? It was to involve repentance, as this verse says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, just to kind of cap the point, flip to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation, he's speaking to the church in Ephesus and the church in Pergamum. And to Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, he's going to commend them for their good deeds. In verse 2, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. This is a good thing. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But... Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. God takes repentance seriously. He would eliminate this church if they would not repent. Again, chapter 2, look at verse 16. This time to a different church. He says, Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So we see, gang, I hope that we see, repentance is important for salvation. Repentance is crucial for salvation. But coming off this, we've seen genuine faith, the need for that, and what genuine repentance looks like. I want to consider one last thing, and that is that genuine faith, when there's, when there's been genuine faith and repentance, it will produce obedience. We saw in James 2, right, that faith is accompanied by works, but Jesus also talks about this. So flip back to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at a section of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. He says, Jesus speaking, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And so, just initially, Jesus has created a a dichotomy. There's two ways, right? There are two groups of people, narrow gate, broad gate. How are we going to know who's in which gate? Keep reading. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits." So Jesus says, this is how you are going to know who is real and who is not. Look at their fruit. Okay, you can't just staple cardboard fruit to a a thorn bush and call it an apple tree, right? There's going to be a manifestation of the Spirit working within that is going to cause someone to grow in Christ-likeness. That's going to cause someone to want to obey Christ. The man or woman who is born again is the man or woman who's going to have a life that's bearing fruit. And really, this kind of faith that produces this kind of fruit, like we said, it's a gift. And that's the distinguishment that I believe Jesus is even making. Look at verse 21. 
He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Here again, he's drawing this distinguishment between those who are real and those who are fake. And there are some, get this gang, there are some who are going to profess to to have faith. Look at what this guy said. He said, Lord, Lord. Right? This isn't a guy who doesn't believe in God. This is a guy who does believe in God. He says, Lord, Lord, and yet he wasn't real. He didn't have genuine faith. Why? Well, because on the basis of this, there was no obedience in his life. There was no conformity to the will of God in his life. And this is a demonstration of the kind of faith that is required for salvation. Verse 23, Jesus kind of caps it off and he says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Ephesians chapter 2, we don't have to go there, but many of you know verse 8 and 9, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast, right? So we're not saved by works, we got that. We're saved by faith on account of grace. But what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, we are saved unto good works. Therefore, if there are not good works following, there's reason to question if salvation has actually occurred. To demonstrate this kind of obedience, uh, the last demonstration, I want you to go back to Matthew chapter 10. Because Jesus is really going to just hit this straightforward, on the dot, as directly as possible. Matthew chapter 10, I know we're jumping around, but this one will be helpful. Verse 37. Jesus says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not... Take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And I wish I had time to really dig into this and go in depth. But basically, I want to give you three overview principles. Number one, genuine faith loves Jesus more than anyone else on earth. No other family relationship, friend relationship. Jesus must be number one. If Christ is preeminent, which he is, then he deserves our greatest allegiance. Number two, genuine faith dies to self and follows Jesus through life. In other words, one's own passions and pleasures, all of your relationships, everything must be surrendered to Jesus. That's verse 38. And number three, verse 39, there must be a wholesale losing of one's life. All of your goals, your ambitions, Like I said, your relationships, everything must be surrendered to Jesus. If you found your life in something, then Jesus says you will ultimately, what? You ultimately lose it. But if you forget your life and the plan that you had for the sake of Jesus, then you will find it. So to wrap up in closing of what the Bible says on this matter, let's try to connect some dots. I want to kind of review what we've just done. Our original question is, must Jesus be both Lord and Savior of an individual for genuine salvation to occur? Right? James showed us that there's two kinds of faith, real and fake. The real is accompanied by works to prove it to be real, whereas the fake is not. 
Jesus further emphasized this point with the rich young ruler who had some spiritual interest but did not have genuine faith. This same point is further illustrated by the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, the men who sold everything they had and went and bought that field out of joy for it. Then we looked at the fact that repentance and faith must go hand in hand. To highlight this point, we looked through Acts and Jesus saying in Mark 1.15, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And lastly, we saw that genuine faith produces obedience. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. We saw it from Ephesians 2, again from Matthew 10, where Jesus lays out the cost of following him. And again, this hasn't been exhaustive, but I believe it's been abundantly clear that everyone who says they're a a believer is not actually a believer. It's clear that there is a genuine faith and an ungenuine faith. There is such a thing as a a person who professes to be a Christian who is not really a Christian. For example, some will say they're a believer for fire insurance, right? I just want to put Jesus in my back pocket so I don't go to hell and burn, and then I'm going to cruise on through the rest of my life. Some will say they're a believer for status. They want to fit in with a group of people, perhaps this group. Some will say they're a believer to fit in. Some will say that they're a believer because they do have a genuine interest in spiritual things, but when it comes down to it, they love their sin more than they love God. They're not willing to give what it takes. Therefore, as we have seen, a distinguishment must be made between genuine faith and fake faith. And it seems as though the non-lordship camp does not properly understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. In other words, being saved, justified, and then Christian growth. They fail to recognize that bearing the fruit of repentance is imperative. It must occur in genuine salvation. There must be some measure of obedience to Christ. Now, in closing, I want to point out some initial dangers or slippery slopes that we can fall into. Number one, don't confuse justification and sanctification. I'm not saying if you're not a Christian or if you're unsure that you need to go do a bunch of works and be obedient and uh, try to bear up this kind of fruit on your own. That's not what I'm saying. There's no work that can merit salvation, no fruit. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. The issue, though, is determining whether or not this kind of justification has occurred. And a manner in which you can tell is, am I growing in the Lord? Do I have a hatred for sin? Am I willing to be obedient to Christ? Not perfectly, but is there that kind of uh, desire within me? But the second danger is this, gang, and this is important. Be careful not to judge people on the basis of their apparent lack of fruit. And this is tough because even though we've labored to make this point, there is still the possibility of a Christian struggling with sin, a Christian even living carnally for a period of time. The major distinction that is made is, yes, between true believers and and not true believers, but that's not for us to decide, okay? We can look at someone's fruit and, and be persuaded to believe that they're a believer, but ultimately it is between them and God. A true Christian most likely will. In fact, you will struggle with sin. Now, I would say, for your own sake, there is a subjective measure of, do I hate that sin? Am I battling that sin? Am I making war with that sin? Am I growing in Christ's likeness? But just in closing, be careful not to judge people based on what you're seeing. 
uh, all the time. Just be very careful with that. Be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. So in closing, I want to look at two implications, just real quick. Number one, is this the Jesus that you believe in? Right? It's a close case. We've seen this. This is the gospel call. Have you recognized Jesus as your Savior only, or is he also the Lord of your life? The Lordship of Christ means that he is master. And so when you say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I just want to ask, is he your Lord and Savior? And number two, is this the Jesus that you proclaim? When talking to people about the Lord, are you trying to paint Christianity as attractive as possible? Are you trying to sell the person like a car salesman? Are you proclaiming that Jesus is both Lord and King and pleading with them to submit to him? Or are you just asking them to accept Christ? You know that you won't find those terms in the Bible to accept Christ. Okay? Again, if you use it, maybe you understand and you can explain what you mean, but he doesn't need our acceptance. He demands our worship and our surrender and our praise of him, our obedience. And so, guys, in closing, Jesus is Lord. He is Lord, and that is a wonderful thing when you know him as your own Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have exalted your Son to be both Lord and Savior. Lord, you have given him dominion. You have given all right and authority to him. And Father, we know ultimately he will be the judge. Lord, he will judge on the basis of what they have done with him, whether they have received him or rejected him. So God, we do pray that, Lord, for any in this group that have not received him, that they would do so even now, or sitting where where they are, that they would receive him as Lord and Savior, or that they would recognize that he is Lord and Savior and turn to him in obedience and submission. God, that they would place their full faith in him. God, we thank you for this truth in our lives, and we do pray, God, that we would be stirred to be more obedient to those of us that are believers, that we would stir, be stirred to love and follow him with all of our hearts, with our entire life, Lord. We just want to worship you because of the grace you've shown us. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.